Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Alex Morell, a Bristol-based boff with a passion for books, beers and buildings. Alex is currently strategy director at brand agency Epoch. Supplying strategic simplicity to the world's biggest FMCG brands, he is hell-bent on making the complex clear and understanding the role of advertising and marketing in his clients' growth, culture and society at large. Alex says... Let's stop criticising broadcast advertising for being inefficient. Let's stop worrying about it being wasteful. Over a century of research suggests the exact opposite. The very things that make mass media less efficient are also the very things that make them more effective. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, Giles. Nice to talk to you. Right, seven quickfire questions, Alex. So, Mac or PC? Uh, Mac. Beers or books? Oh, books. Another beer one now. An IPA or the IPA? Uh, an IPA. Uh, Madrid or Copenhagen? Oh, I've been to both this year. Um, I loved Copenhagen. I'm going to go Copenhagen. Copenhagen, nice. Uh, content or context? Context. Right, tricky one, I think. Tim Ambler or Professor Karen Nelson-Field? Oh, that is a tricky one. Um, I'll, go, I'll go Tim Ambler. Uh, and maybe I'll come on to on to Karen Nelson Field a bit later. Okay, good stuff. Uh, right, last one. We're going back to Bristol now. Ronnie size or massive attack? Um, I'll go massive attack. Nice. Used to go to the club that they owned in Bristol. So, yeah, some fond memories for them. Oh, good man. Well, Alex, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, no, thank you for having me. Uh, I was just, just uh, saying before we started recording that we've been speaking for probably two or three years, but I've never actually... Uh, been in a conversation with you so it's a it's an honor and a pleasure <laughs> you say that now <laughs> <laughs> so to start the show Alex we always like to celebrate weird and wonderful ways that our guests uh, find themselves where they do in their career so I saw you studied graphic design at university I actually left UE the year you joined so make of that what you will okay um, and you're now strategy director at Epoch so to kick things off what was your first ever job and then what was your first proper job yeah I, I think I was I was somewhat fortunate in that from from a relatively young age I had I had a, a degree of focus on what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go so I studied graphic design as you said studied that at GCSE level so from the age of about 14 uh, I did that through an A level and then an HND and then, uh, eventually a bachelor's at UWE um, and I, I kind of always wanted to be a designer. I graduated in two thousand and eight, which was which was not a good year to graduate. Um, that was the year of the Great Recession, and for about six months or so, maybe maybe a year, I, I really struggled to kind of get a foot into the industry. If I'm honest, I struggled to, to kind of get a response at that time, let alone 
an interview or, or even a role. And eventually I was taken on by a small agency in North Bristol called Design Simple uh, for a sort of extended internship. Uh, the founder there, Luke Bizio, sort of took me under his wing a little bit and taught me a huge amount. It's kind of 15 years or so ago, but I, I still feel quite kind of indebted to, to Luke. He, he taught me about design, but, but also about the kind of commercials of agency life and the practicalities of cost estimates and uh, how to politely chase late payments and presenting work and how to write your payment terms and all, all, all things like that. And so I worked there for a little bit and eventually that came to an end. Then Design Simple continued to um, send work my way after that internship came to an end. Um, and anything that came to them that maybe wasn't a good fit for them, they kind of ushered my way. So I, I kind of fell into freelancing for a bit where Design Simple were giving me some work. I started to form some relationships with some other agencies where I was supporting them. Started to build a small client base of my own, working directly with clients. And then maybe a couple of years later, I, I kind of came to the realisation that I really wanted to work in a much bigger team that I felt that I maybe wasn't progressing too much working on my own and wanted to be amongst people that were kind of much, much better than me and much, much more experienced than me and to, to benefit from their wisdom and their experience. So I, I drew up a, a short list of agencies in the Southwest that, that I'd be interested in working for and Epoch's name had come up a few times when I'd been freelancing at other agencies and they're quite a secretive bunch at Epoch and I didn't really know much about them at the time their website was just their logo and a phone number but I, I eventually managed to get in touch and and took on a role initially as an art worker and uh, I was hired by a guy called Simon Ward who's the head of artwork and kind of introduced me to agency life and and then after a few years I I then kind of felt like I wanted to make a bit of a move and started to make some noises about moving into the creative team and our then creative director who was a brilliant guy called Kelly Finnegan he said have you ever thought about being a planner now we weren't an ad agency and I hadn't really been exposed to the world of planning or strategy uh, so I, I, I sort of spent a, a few a few weeks, maybe a month, just kind of diving into it. Kind of got into Mark Pollard's community and started to read some of Julian Cole's very early decks when he was out in New York, uh, and kind of eventually came to this conclusion that that maybe this was my home after kind of doing a bit of client services and a bit of creative and a bit of artwork, and I actually felt that I'd kind of found a place for myself when I came across strategy, and. I had a conversation with Ant Lucas, who's one of the two founders at Epoch, and kind of said this is maybe what I wanted to do. And they were good enough to support me, and they they said let's give it a go for a year and and see what what comes of it. And the the team has grown by a person a year ever since, and that's maybe eight years ago now. So oh, wow. was um sorry to cut you off, Anne. I was just going to ask was was that planning role was that uh, effectively a new was new to the agency then? Yeah, at the time, I mean, in hindsight, strategic work was being done, but it was it was sort of being done partly by the creative team and partly by client services team. 
so there was kind of comms plans and touchpoint plans and, and you know things like that but it as a as a dedicated department it, it didn't exist at the time and as, as i said i'm kind of fortunate enough that the agency kind of took a bit of a gamble to make that a thing because otherwise I, I, I suppose i could have gone elsewhere that's really interesting though and actually i you mentioned prior to creating that shortlist of agencies that you could see yourself working with, you felt like you would kind of maybe working on your own wasn't the right pace of, of development. And yet I imagine you were still kind of on your own in a way, albeit with that agency support, to carve out this dedicated department. That must have been quite exciting. Yeah, it was definitely exciting. I've got a bit of a a theory that the re- the really good people in our industry whatever department they work in, I tend to be pretty good at most of the kind of department skills. So a really great creative can spot a great strategy. Um, a good strategist can build a great client relationships and, and things like that. And whilst I was sort of siloed for that, that year or so, whilst we kind of fired up the strategy department, I, I, I sort of picked out the people around the agency who, who had a good strategic brain on them, even if they, you know, you know, were in creative or client services or or whatever it may be so i kind of found allies around the business that could that would see the valuing in strategy even though it was just me on my own again yeah that's nice and and so you said right at the beginning going going to study graphic design sounds like that was a very conscious decision often you know as i'm sure you know as well you probably had peers in the same uh, position you often get a, a, an amount of people at any university course who were kind of there without necessarily planning it or having the, I suppose, the, the life experience to even know if it's the right decision, which I think is, is fair. How did you find that change from graphic design to planning? So you're still very much thinking creatively, but you're not necessarily producing aesthetic design. Well, I, I always enjoyed the sort of creative or concepting end of design, the thinking end of design. Um, and if I'm really honest, I, I probably wasn't the best at the kind of executing end of it. So in the in the brief spell that I, I was part of the creative department, I was much more at the kind of early stages of creative, of, of kind of getting to an idea, a design idea, rather than the kind of crafting end of it. Well, whilst the journey seems kind of like I'm uh, sort of pinballing around different roles, and I was to a certain extent, but that the transition from creative to strategy felt quite natural yeah I, I mean to be honest for me personally I don't think you're pinballing at all but I say that as someone who's gone through that exact same journey I mean literally in terms of in graphic design at UE but also from starting off studio side and, and doing some creative art working when I started and then becoming an art director and it was only after spending Oh, probably at least five or six years in an agency when I realised actually I wanted to be the guy in the room where the briefing was happening to understand any creative opportunities that might have been missed prior to a brief being written. So to me, it seems very natural. But then I know, as you know, I'm sure you do too, that actually it does seem quite alien to people who find themselves in one position and they develop it within that department as they as they go and there's you know there's no right or wrong but I do I do find myself inclined to agree with your point that the best people that you work with tend to be good at other parts or they have at least experience in different departments because you've got that you know that empathy that is so critical to marketing yeah I I see the kind of the experience or exposure to lots of the different departments in in the early years of my career has been has been a real benefit I think 
strategist tends to work at the kind of center of lots of different departments. You know, you're you're supporting client services in uh, building the relationship with clients. You're working directly with clients to kind of uh, clarify their briefs. Um, you're briefing in a creative team and following a creative project through. You're working within your strategic team. So you, I kind of think that strategist acts as a kind of as a kind of pivot point in the middle of lots of different departments. And I see it as a benefit to have experienced some of those different departments so that I can empathize with them and the challenges that they are faced with. And and where was it on this, this journey then? Where was it where you started noticing, I suppose, errors in both efficiencies and effectiveness? Because that's something I want to come on to. And we're going to do a, a, a fairly deeper dive as we can in the time allowed but was that even in your role when you were more studio based could you see that there were uh, decisions being made that needed to be questioned or was that something that kind of crept in the more and more immersed in strategy that you got I I think it was probably always there you know graduating when I did and having worked in the industry for around what 13 14 15 years now it, it kind of perfectly tracks the the period where uh, the huge growth of the internet and digital marketing and, and performance marketing. And and so I I, I kind of saw this shift ha- happening, uh, may, maybe away from traditional advertising towards performance marketing. And, and at the same time, saw a shift towards efficiency within the industry more, more broadly. So I speak, I speak in um, one of the articles I've written about how you, you see things like adoption of agile processes and lean workflows and lean startups and things like that. So you started to see this kind of, I call it the era of efficiency, kind of starting to take over where perhaps the desire to kind of minimise waste through whether it's targeted advertising or through the processes with which work is created, that that desire to minimise waste sort of became more important to the industry than maximising the impact of the work. And I don't think I ever had a kind of moment of realisation, but it was just kind, of, just kind of growing feeling that that's the way things were going, a kind of trend that was recognised. Again, I, I mentioned before we started recording, I just had a, a conversation with, with Rich Kirk from Zenith and we were talking about the same thing. And I have a feeling that, you know, give or take a few years, uh, he and I and you all similar age because we spoke about that, how that kind of emergence of new media um, and lots of different digital channels we kind of lived through that and we saw it firsthand and I recall I recall actually working at an agency at the time who made quite a very you know quite a binary call very early on that we weren't even going to be allowed to use Facebook within the office premises let alone explore it and see if it was a you know represented a tool of any worth and then it almost went completely full circle where the answer was social media what's the question it was bizarre it was quite interesting to live through but you can't live through that type of experience with being without being naturally inquisitive and I suppose I'm slightly cynical when it comes to new forms of media just because I feel like you need to be in order to interrogate and justify what you're being told Mm. and and on the topic of efficiency versus effectiveness I I sort of gradually started to see people ask the question of kind of what what is the difference and they you know they genuinely didn't know and I don't say that in a patronizing way or a derogatory way they, they were asking the question with an open mind and curiosity and I always felt like I sort of had an answer 
but that it it was sort of blurry and and vague and I, I i never thought that i could kind of give an answer very concisely in you know a tweet response or something so i i, I never really engaged in that in, in that question and it after kind of playing on my mind for a little bit i really i really thought i should try and formalize some sort of response to that and and clarify it cool can, can you clarify it now for our listeners uh, I, I can do my best i suppose i suppose to to kick off with there's always been to some degree and the idea that mass broadcast advertising is wasteful um it's almost a cliche to reference it but there's the the john want to make a quote of half the money i spend in advertising is wasted the trouble is i don't know which half and that variously gets attributed to different people so there's always there's always been some sense that advertising especially mass reach or traditional advertising is in some way inefficient that there is a degree of waste within within it and like i came across a piece of research by ubiquity who are the the media investment analysts and they had done some research and found that this drive towards the more efficient medias uh, which tends to be the more digital media was driven by three things and it was those three things were the perception that uh, paid digital, particularly social media and online video, was driven by the idea that they were, it was cheaper, that it was targeted, and that it provided a measurable response, that, that there was some degree of engagement that could be measured. And when I read this piece of research, th- those three things really started to provide the, the kind of structure for this article. So it's, so that, that this kind of starting point is that if, if uh, efficient media is cheap, targeted, and uh, communicates to a highly engaged audience, and if the inverse is the critique that traditional media is expensive, it's untargeted, and it's often ignored, maybe there's a, there's a point of pushback here that those three things are not so much critiques or weaknesses, but are actually points of strength. And, and the article's sort of structured around this idea that being expensive, being mass and being ignored might actually be a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's funny, actually, that John Wanamaker quote, I must have seen it attributed to at least half a dozen people. That idea of waste, and I say this as someone who, as an agency, we've always been really interested in behavioural science. And we've been going to Rory's brilliant nudge stocks ever since it started because we were just so fascinated in it. The reason I'm talking about Rory is because we've always loved signaling and the power of signaling. And in fact, we talked about it with the background story of your surname, which I'm hoping we can revisit at some point in the recording. But that idea of the waste has to mean something bad, like waste has to be seen as a negative thing rather than something that's the abundance of something that has a beneficial effect. And I think there's there's tie-ins there with, with signalling. Every year when the Super Bowl happens, which I think is in kind of February kind of time, there, there's there's always a slew of articles around kind of how much a 30-second spot this, at the Super Bowl costs and what you could get for that money in uh, in other media channels. So Digiday published a, uh, an article that said for the cost of a 30-second spot, you could buy 2.5 billion Snapchat impressions, 1.7 billion impressions on Instagram or Facebook, uh, 600 million impressions on LinkedIn. And I think that sort of misses a crucial point. And as, as you say, um, Darwin had his, his theory of 
evolution, which was that uh, small mutations in an animal, if, if they were beneficial, then that would make that animal more likely to survive. And over time, species would uh, gradually converge on a sort of optimal set of traits. But but Darwin was was sort of baffled by a, a, a set of animals that had attributes that seemed to hinder their survival rather than than help it. So as you say, a peacock's tail kind of ornate plumage that would make it very difficult for a, a peacock to get away from a predator or a stag with kind of ginormous horns or antlers or a a bird that spends hours making a kind of ornate nest, that kind of thing. Uh, he, Darwin, Darwin actually said that the sight of a peacock's tail feather made him physically sick. This is how much it kind of annoyed him. Um, and he, he kind of came to a bit of a breakthrough, which is that um, evolution relies not just on a species' ability to survive but on its ability to procreate and his his theory evolved to include this idea that the the ornate tail feathers of the peacock or the 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 large antlers of a stag were signs of fitness that these animals were so strong that they could afford to waste resources that they could survive despite their physical encumbrances and that that would make them a more attractive mate because they were sort of signals of their strength and prowess. And I, I suppose brands uh, and high spend perform a sort of similar role. The The huge cost of the Super Bowl ad uh, 30 seconds is a, is a signal to an audience that that brand is strong and financially stable and is confident and is likely to go on being kind of strong and stable and confident for a long time to come. Yeah, so I suppose the um I suppose lots of businesses need to stop thinking so much like early Darwin thoughts or scientists in that regard. I've heard Rory share a story a few times about how the waggle dance that honeybees do baffled scientists for years as well because they expected this kind of efficiency amongst uh, bees that they'd be so compliant they would all follow the same uh, piece of communication was actually the opposite is true because if they all followed the waggle dance they'd all become overly reliant on a single source of food and ultimately perish yeah it's fascinating i love rory's book alchemy he in that he sort of pushes this argument to its extreme he talks about how the potency or meaningfulness of a piece of communication is in direct proportion to its costliness. So the more money that it costs to produce and to place in media, the the more potent and meaningful it will be, which is sort of this this argument, but but pushed to a to an extreme. I'm going to go through your three errors, if I may. If you can just uh, give me a bit of detail about each one. Uh, the, the kind of counterpoint. So error number one that you've written is mass media is wasteful because it is untargeted yeah so so the the um the wanamaker quote of 50 percent of media is um or 50 percent of advertising is wasted in in the digital age sort of got pushed to an extreme so chris anderson who was editor at wired magazine and probably most famous for his book uh, the long tail he wrote a book called free and he he claimed that 90 percent of broadcast media reached an audience that was completely uninterested in it and to, to some degree, that makes some sense. You know, if you 
if you um, are advertising a luxury car, Mercedes, for example, then there's a huge portion of that audience who will not be able to purchase that that brand or that that car. They may be too young, they may be too old, they may um, not have a driving license, they may have been banned from driving, you know, whatever it may be. They may might use public transport, and so you could see all of that, all of those impressions as inefficiency or waste, waste to be eradicated. But but that ignores what I believe is one of the most powerful roles that a brand plays, which is the role of signalling something about one's identity. So we, we talk about kind of functional and emotional benefits of brands, but I think there's also self-expressive ones. If you, if you, to use the car example, if you're uh, seen driving a Mercedes, then that communicates certain things about you. It communicates maybe your financial status or your sense of style or uh, some sensibilities that you have, that, that sort of thing. And if you buy into that idea, the idea of self-expressive benefits, then you you have to buy into the idea that you need everybody to know what that brand stands for. It's not enough just for the target audience to, to understand it, but everybody else needs to, to understand it as well. And I know, I know Giles, you're a, a massive Jeremy Bormore fan, and he wrote that if a, if a luxury car only ever advertised to people, who are in the market for a luxury car, nobody would be in the market for that car. That's mainly by one to be the envy of the people who can't afford it. Exactly that. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I think Jeremy Bullmore is one of the greatest thinkers that we have ever had in this in this game. Absolutely brilliant point. But, but there goes that point about shared meaning and shared knowledge that you have about a brand that you get via mass that you would never get in, say, one-to-one piece of targeted advertising. Yeah, and... and... There's a there's a great article I can't remember the name of it but I'll I'll send you a link after by Kevin Simler, and he he goes a kind of extra step further he he talks about how it's it's almost not an, enough for an ad to reach a large audience but it has to reach a large audience publicly um, everybody needs to know that everybody else knows what a brand stands for. You know, if if I see a Mercedes advertised on TV or cinema, or press or out of home, I have a pretty high confidence that most people will have some degree of knowledge about that brand. But if I see it on a highly targeted media, then I not then that confidence kind of disappears. I don't know whether only I've seen that or, not, or I'm in a very small group that have been targeted with that advert. So a, a mass audience need needs to see an advert for it to kind of take on these self-expressive benefits or cultural imprinting as Kevin Simler calls it. A mass of people have to see it but also they have to know that a massive audience has, has seen it. Yes yeah exactly that. Okay how about error two then? Mass media is wasteful because it is ignored. Well th- this is probably the most um, controversial of the three I think um, and this is where Karen Nelson Field comes in uh, Karen works at Amplified Intelligence. She's the founder of Amplified Intelligence. She used to work at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. She does lots of research around attention and the the different levels of active attention that different media receive. And I saw her give a talk a few a few years back. It was called "Not All Reaches Equal," and she she shared data that 
Instagram video ads uh, receive uh, about 89% of their duration receives active attention. And as, as you move across different digital media, that kind of starts to reduce a bit and eventually you get to TV. And I, from memory, I think TV was about 35%. So it's, uh, 35% of the duration of a TV ad doesn't receive active attention, eyes on attention. And again, you could argue that that means two thirds of the, the spend is wasted because, you know, of a 30 second spot, 20 seconds didn't receive active attention. But again, I, I think this um, sort of misses the mark slightly. Way back at the very early 1900s, there was a advertiser called Walter D. Scott who wrote a book called The Psychology of Advertising. He tells a story about a, a lady who would commute to and from work every day on, on the streetcars, you know, the, the trams. And in all of the trams, there was advertising and she claimed that she didn't read any of the ads. But when Scott inquired a bit further, he found that she knew most of the ads by heart and that her her perception of each of the brands was um, she, she held them in a higher esteem than you would expect from an average consumer. So this indicates that may, maybe fully active eyes on attention isn't required. Now, now, admittedly, Walter D. Scott's anecdote wasn't highly scientific. There were um, there's only you know one researcher, one subject. There's no kind of quantifiable aspect to it. We have no idea how many ads she saw, what her recall levels were. We just don't know. Um, but but then about fifty years later, in the middle of the century, Leon Furstinger uh, at Stanford. Uh, conducted an experiment. Furstinger was the, he coined the term cognitive dissonance, which is the kind of discomfort that one feels when you're presented with information that contradicts uh, an existing belief that you hold. Uh, he conducted an, an experiment at Stanford where he recruited members of a fraternity um, and he presented them with an audio argument that made the case that fraternities were morally wrong. And uh, like all good psychology experiments, there was a slight twist, which was that uh, there was in fact two groups and that one of the groups was simultaneously shown a silent film, completely unrelated silent film. And Firstinger measured their support of uh, fraternities before and after the experiment. And what he found was that the the change in opinion or belief was greatest in the group that had been shown the silent film at the same time. And he hypothesized that the silent film acted as a distraction, which sort of weakened the subject's cognitive defenses, that the undistracted group uh, could give their full attention to the message, the argument, and could create counter arguments and could kind of rationally debate it um, and uh, push back against it. Whereas the distracted group, group sort of uh, adopted the argument with, with little pushback. Um, Paul Feldwick, who, who I'm a massive fan of, he, in, in discussing this experiment, he said, uh, when we don't notice we are being influenced, we cannot argue back. 
And so there's this this idea that perhaps perhaps an inattentive audience uh, sort of soaks up our distinctive brand assets and our messages and the uh, tone of voice that we deliver a message in and all of that kind of gets soaked up and kind of lodges itself in the subconscious and long-term memory without ever really kind of actively or deeply processing the message. I love I love that quote from Paul Feldwick. We've had Paul Feldwick's been on Call to Action recently, as has Professor Karen Nelson Field. She was on a few weeks ago and she was absolutely wonderful. But I but I think it's such a key point that people don't necessarily consider or, or want maybe they just don't want to believe it's true. I made a similar point recently. I was talking about London's or Adlan's London bubble and how I think that kind of detachment from the real world, if we, you know, inverted commas, real world, mostly outside London, that bubble's only been made worse because of the pandemic, because a lot of people who work in Adland, and 85%, we believe, live in London, that opportunity to just rub shoulders with normal people on their commutes to work has been removed because of lockdown. So not only are people living in the bubble of London, they also have been in a bubble within that bubble, <laughs> which I think, you know, that there's a sort of passive ethnography, maybe you could call it, that's that's been taken away. Yeah, for, for sure. I should I should say, by the way, that I I I think in the quickfire questions, I didn't choose Karen Nelson Field, but I, but I am a massive fan of her work, and she, and she actually um, sort of acknowledges. The idea that that some attention is better than no attention, uh, and that it, her work finds that the higher the active attention, the greater the short-term response, the kind of sales activation response. And I, I think her work and the work of Firstinger and perhaps later Dr. Robert Heath sort sort of maybe work hand in hand. That that maybe it's the inattention or the, the slightly ignored work uh, or advertising that is more akin to brand building and that kind of just slowly kind of seeps into your subconscious and kind of a, a jingle kind of comes to mind and you instantly know the brand and that, that kind of thing. Whereas the the work that requires active attention is maybe uh, more effective for the sales activation, the short term, the kind of the calls to action, the, the price promotions, things like that. Have you ever seen, um, I believe he's a Bristolian, he certainly lived there when I was at UE, but have you seen Darren Brown's uh, TV show, his kind of stunt when he invited a couple of agencies to uh, pitch ideas to a brief that he selected for them? No. Really, it's really interesting. It's always one of the very first things I believe that he did, so it's probably going back 15, 20 years maybe, um, I'll find a, a link to it. I'm sure it's on YouTube and we'll add it to this episode. But he basically made that same point about um, how receptive we are subconsciously. And he invited, now maybe it was just one ad agency, to come to his office uh, to receive a brief and spend some time thinking about it and turning it around in a day. Um, a standard, a fairly standard creative brief. But what he had done very strategically and very intelligently in that Darren Brown way is he had 
he had he, he controlled the route or the journey that these people took from being picked up from their hotel or agency to the venue where they were going to receive the pitch and he made sure they stopped at certain traffic lights where they could be exposed to certain things like characters and mascots in shop windows and all sorts of things that he basically planted to demonstrate I suppose slightly the point you've just been making and he effectively predicts what the ad agency is going to come up with who claim it's going to be an original idea and yet by exposing them repeatedly to certain physical objects and things along their journey it kind of plants this seed in the, in, in their head it's wonderful I'll, I'll um i'll dig it out and share it yeah you know the work of daniel kahneman and people like that who who found that the amount of information that we perceive through our senses is so much greater than the amount of information that we kind of consciously process i think it's something like 9010 or 955 that that sort of thing so there's a huge amount of information that we're exposed to and that influences influences on some level that isn't necessarily conscious or that we're aware of i, I would i would caveat that this can be taken too far and i, I think vance packard who uh, wrote the hidden persuaders and the idea of subliminal advertising, and there was a big, big kind of Ferrari around around that, has largely been discredited. That uh, his his sort of um, story was that a single frame in a film, a twenty four frames per second film, um, with a message on, could influence you. And I think that's largely been discredited. I think that there has to be some perception. You have to be able to kind of perceive it in some way it doesn't doesn't necessarily need to be kind of fully conscious active perception but in the Darren Brown example you know they they are seeing those things and being exposed to the the various cues along that route that Darren Brown has um placed them but I, I I'd be wary of kind of pushing it too far that you can kind of subliminally uh influence people's behavior yeah, it's kind of a very old school uh, kind of thinking around advertising and the sort of brainwashing uh, capacity of it, isn't there? I'm slight, I'm mindful of, of, of time, but I was going to ask to, I was going to talk to you about the expense. So Ever3 is mass media is wasteful because it is expensive. I'm mindful we have touched on signaling a few times and I've kind of already crowbarred the, <laughs> the, the peacock's plumage in uh, once. But is there is there much else around that that you can elaborate on? No, no. I think I think we've largely covered it. I think the the reason I chose Tim Ambler in the in the quickfire questions is that he, I think, was the the first person that I can find that has drawn the link between the kind of biological side, the Darwinian side, and the marketing brand building side. And I I think that's such a brilliant lateral leap to make. And whilst I love Karen Nelson Fields work and greatly admire it. Uh, that sort of lateral jump, I think, is it w- 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 was glorious. Yeah, no, absolutely, very well said. No, we're we're also fans of, of Professor Karen Nelson Field. And to be honest, if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't have asked you to make such a binary choice between two such esteemed people. Uh, so yeah, apologies if if I made that made that awkward. Um, I, the last thing before we go to uh, our listener questions is just in conclusion. And I know, and we've spoken about this before, your your piece isn't a 
criticism on other forms of marketing and, and you know media choices and per- performance marketing let's call it uh, at all is it it's merely just an acknowledgement of what people might perceive to be ineffective actually is effective and we shouldn't prioritize efficiency in the way that we currently can do too easily yeah so some of the feedback i got from the article is generally very well received but some of the feedback i got was um so saw it as an argument for inefficient media over efficient media or for the effective over the efficient and that wasn't the intention at all. The, the intention was to defend that there is value in mass media and inefficient media. And that, val- that, that value comes across in the kind of cultural imprinting that I've spoken about, the, the seducing the subconscious that Dr. Robert Heath talks about, in the costly signalling that Rory talks about. And, but, but, but all of that should be balanced with efficient media, ju- just as you would balance brand building and sales activation that there, that there is a role for both and that they should complement each other it, it it shouldn't be i don't think a binary choice between one or the other it should be what's our problem what's our objective and how do we allocate our funds accordingly to, to best solve that absolutely good well I'm, I'm pleased you've i'm pleased you've managed to um kind of have the opportunity at least to set set that straight Sorry, it's just most podcasts would drop a jarring advert into this vacuous point in space and time. But Gasp don't do podcast ads, and if we did, we'd probably subvert the form in a clever way that ironically gets you to contact the host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 952 007. Only last week some pod listening companies did just that, calling us for guidance on lead generation and brand identity. But please don't do that. Let's get you back to the show. I will go into the rural areas. I will travel with people back and forth. I will go live in slums. The world's only global tech ethnographer, Tricia Wang there on Call to Action episode 15. Not what we were looking for, though. Hang on. I've got a couple of listener questions for you, Alex. Here we go. Okay, okay. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, we've got two for you, starting with uh, Jim from Lincoln. He asks, or he says, I thoroughly enjoyed your article on the pitfalls of purpose. My question is, can purpose be pursued successfully by brands? Can you name any examples of brands that have found success in purpose? Oh, good question. All of my um, articles try to sort of take aim at one of the big topics or one of the big debates or one of the big questions contentions that exist within the industry and I I sort of felt like I had to write something about purpose because it's such a contentious topic the the article that Jim refers to pitfalls of, of purpose broadly kind of outlines the ways that that purpose goes wrong um it it sort of makes the claim that purpose isn't wholly positive or isn't a kind of silver bullet to, for success it but it isn't also wholly negative it can't it can't never work it's not kind of doomed to failure um and i think um peter field's work that uh, caused a bit of an uproar at the um f week last year uh, sort of found this that um 
in summary, his work found that on, on average, campaigns that were built around purpose were slightly less effective than uh, campaigns that weren't built around purpose. But within the purpose bracket, there was a group of very effective case studies and a group of very ineffective case studies. So purpose can be done well and it can be done poorly. And I kind of I kind of list three pitfalls within it. The first is not being credible. And um, there's a great cartoon by the marketoonist where uh, he gives a kind of standard brand ladder of kind of product truth, functional benefit, emotional ben- benefit. And then it keeps going up and up and up until they kind of fall off the top of the ladder and kind of in there striving to go to a kind of big, worthy purpose kind of ends up uh, being completely detached from the, the credible product truth at the, the base of the ladder. And I think to do purpose well, you ha- it has to be highly credible. The example I give as, as, as being a very good example here is the brand Lifebuoy, which is a antibacterial soap which was developed in the UK by the Lieber brothers to help fight cholera initially. It's now very popular in uh, countries like India. And uh, their purpose is to help children reach the age of five, uh, to, so to reduce child mortality, essentially. And they, they do that through their antibacterial soap and healthy hand hygiene, which stops the spread of diseases and things like that. So their, their purpose and their product are have a really strong link between them. And um, we can all think of purpose campaigns where that link hasn't been there and things have gone very badly and ads have been taken off air and things like that. <clears throat> very good. Well, we're going to link to that article as well in this episode. So I, I, I encourage everyone to, to check that out. Question two is from Zoe. You're captured by an evil wizard. They wave their magic wand and eliminate all the knowledge you've learned from every marketing book you've ever read, apart from one. Which one do you choose to remember? Oh. And you're a very well-read man, Alex. So you're gonna you're gonna struggle here. Oh, that's tr- that's tricky. I mean, this might um this might bleed into um book recommendations question, but. One that I uh, is a go-to recommendation for me is Anatomy of Humbug by Paul Feldwick. And I, I think I find it so valuable because Feldwick, he, he doesn't attempt to give a single answer in, in the book. He gives a history, and I, th- I think he covers six theories of how advertising could work. And it, it's sort of an account of the last, I don't know, century two centuries of advertising or brand thought really and he concludes that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive that the different theories can work together and they can you can have two or three of these theories all working in your favor and in in one relatively short book i think it exposes you to a lot of kind of advertising thought but but i also love that conclusion that it's not a single right answer to this. Brand, brands aren't built in a single way. They, they each exist with their own context and in their own categories and with their own audiences and with their own challenges. And and the different techniques can be applied to that brand um, in order to succeed. So I think if there, if, if there was one that I had to keep with me, it, it would be Anatomy of Humbug. Nice, that's a good choice. Um, so the final part of the interview, Alex, is our four pertinent poses. 
starting with number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Yeah, I think um, I think maybe maybe a couple of things. One one would be to write more and to to write earlier. I I only really started writing about the industry in twenty eighteen, I think it was, and I, I've sort of come to the realization that writing is thinking to a certain degree. That the act the act of writing forces you to clarify your thoughts and formalize it in a way that is very clear and very simple and, and, and but also compelling. Um, and I think I, I didn't I didn't do it for maybe the first decade of my career because I didn't necessarily feel that I had a fully formed argument yet. And I think what's sort of what I've learned over the last four years of doing it is that you kind of don't need a fully formed argument to start. You, you need a hunch or a, a question or a topic. And then you will naturally kind of um, look to substantiate your arguments. You'll read more. You'll kind of expand the argument or narrow the argument over time. And the, the act of writing a few thousand words about a, a topic will will result in you having a much stronger argument than you started out with. And if, and if you can do this, I mean, I don't write huge amounts, maybe two or three articles a year, but I think if you can do that over quite consistently over time, then you end up with having a, a little sort of bank of well-formed arguments or well-formed opinions on a, a number of different topics. So I think I, w- I would have said write, write more and write earlier. Um, the other the other thing is that when I joined, well, when I started in strategy, um, I thought that I was very slow, a very slow thinker. I, I'd obviously, I'd often be in meetings where there was kind of heated debate going on and um, lots of people speaking very passionately, and I always felt that I was kind of a step or two behind. Um, and then usually towards the end of a of a discussion or meeting I would kind of manage to contribute something that sort of cut through the noise a little bit and got to the crux of a problem and Vix Hansard who's the creative director at Epoch would sort of ask me how I did it and she she's is interesting she's sort of perceived it as a as a sort of wise quality that I could say quite little but kind of uh, get to the crux of something, but I always perceived it myself as kind of really taking ages to get to get to a, an opinion. And I've come to realise over the course of my career that that's like, it's okay to to be a bit slow or considered or reserved or maybe a bit introverted, um, and to to really just kind of lean into your way of doing things and what's comfortable and right to you. As long as you get to somewhere good, that it's okay and. So one of the mantras that I've sort of adopted is is direction over speed. The way the direction that you're going in is more important than the, the, the speed at which you're traveling. You and anyone can kind of run around like a headless chicken, but few people can, can go in a really in a direction which points towards success. Uh, so so yeah, that was that was a kind of big sort of anxiety for me when I, when I was starting out is this kind of slowness. But I've, I've come to think to think of it as part of who I am. I love direction over speed. It's, it's, it's funny, isn't it, how we perceive our own, uh, ourselves over how we are perceived. And in fact, that 
taking a breath and, and, and that perception of being slow is something that I always recommend if I'm ever asked for tips on public speaking, like actually pausing and taking your time for the same reason as your creative director uh, concluded what she did. It has exactly that effect. And writing, writing is thinking, right? So, you know, that's really smart because you're right. In your, in your mind, you can think so many, there's so much, like, I suppose, going a nod to wastage, I suppose. It's so easy to overthink and think of too many words, but actually writing things down forces you to think um, and forces you to be um, so selective with your thoughts and your, your points of view. Love that. I, I encourage juniors that, that join Epoch, I encourage them to to write even if they don't publish even if they don't hit go on on the piece because there's still there's still value or, or benefit to the act of clarifying your thinking in in words and and i i think i that i would just wish i had done that earlier it's a great one it's a great one and that, that definitely hasn't come up come up before uh, number two if you could banish one thing from the industry alex what would it be and why Mm, I, I have to admit I struggled with this one a little bit not not because I couldn't think of anything but because I could think too much <laughs> what, what what I've sort of landed on is is this sort of obsession with the pace of change or this kind of idea that there's sort of this runaway train of kind of change happening and that it's exponential and that you know Things will never be as slow as it is today, and and this sort of idea, because I, I, and the reason I've chosen that is I, I think it kind of has a knock-on effect, and it it causes lots of other issues in the industry, such as the obsession with new technology, which is often kind of fleeting, um, such as the obsession with youth and youth audiences who have very little money to spend, potentially even the kind of underrepresentation of older people within our agencies um i think it's all driven by this like just, just this absolute obsession with change and so many times we hear something's been killed it's the end of tv tv is dead or that this new thing will change everything forever and and broadly it's just not true i did i did a whole bunch of research on this and i, I found that the pace of change largely isn't accelerating uh, techn- technological adoption isn't really accelerating. Creative destruction, which is um, the rate at which new businesses are born and um, older businesses die, isn't really accelerating. If anything, it's declining. And when we look back, even even um, fifty years or so, we look, look back to kind of the twenty-five years between nineteen forty-five and nineteen seventy, which has been christened the golden quarter. There's a huge amount of change in, in that era. You had the development of the pill, electronics, um, kind of computing, the, the foundations of the internet, nuclear power, uh, mass adoption of TV, antibiotics, uh, huge kind of cultural moments like gradual decolonization, uh, advent of pop music, mass aviation. It's just a huge amount of change happening in 25 years. We put man on the moon, we sent a probe to Mars, we beat smallpox, the, the kind of um, double helix structure of DNA was discovered. And and I think I think we've always thought that the pace of change is accelerating. And I don't think it's necessarily true. And I think it kind of links back to the idea of kind of 
taking a breath and slowing down a bit and thinking long term and, be, and being a bit more critical and skeptical of things um i think i think would all benefit by sort of letting go of this idea of radical exponential rate of change uh, number three then so apart from anatomy of humbug by paul feldwick are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners yeah, I, I get asked this question um, by interns and, and juniors quite a lot, and Anatomy of Humbug is always my one of my go-tos. The, the other is, and this will have come up many, many times, is How Brands Grow by Byron Sharp. I think that I think they act as a nice pair in that where Feldwick kind of gives these six theories throughout history and that they can interact. Sharp provides a kind of single data-driven theory of how brands grow so the, the two actors quite nice kind of counterbalances to, to each other um outside of the industry i i really enjoy kind of dystopian fiction particularly kind of eastern european dystopian fiction so um, there's a book called we by uh, zamyatin who was a russian um which is so about 30 years before George Orwell wrote 1984. And it has very similar themes. Um, all houses are made of glass, for example, so that the authorities can see into them, that kind of thing. Franz Kafka's The Trial, this kind of idea. He was from, born in Prague in the 20s as well. This kind of overwhelming sense of bureaucracy and kind of impenetrable red tape and things like that. A little more recently, there's a book called Metropole by Ferenc Karinci, who's a Hungarian, wrote it in the 70s, um, which is about a guy who who jumps on a plane to travel to, I think, Iceland or something. And he lands and it's just a a completely unknown city where nobody speaks a language that he recognises. And it's it's so teeming with people and he, he spends weeks and months just trying to kind of work out where he is and kind of to, to escape from this dystopian city but I, I i think the reason why i like this genre is because whilst it's whilst, whilst it's they're always about a dystopian future they're usually a comment on the present a bit a bit like i don't know black mirror or, or something like that where they usually take a a observation or a cultural challenge about today and push it to a slight ex- to an extreme, and then play that story out in the future. So I think there's quite a lot you can learn from we. You can learn about Russia from uh, the from Metropole. You can learn a le- uh, kind of learn about uh, the the challenges of hung- Hungary's past. And yeah, I really enjoyed this 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 genre. It's it's interesting actually. There's a there's a few strategists we've had on the show who have recommended uh, specifically sci-fi genres because they explore you know, that kind of what if this and push those limits of what would happen in this scenario and then what if this. We've not had those specific books, but that kind of, there's a there's a common thread there, I think. The, the ones I particularly like, both in dystopian fiction and sci-fi, are, are ones that are sort of near future where they're kind of close enough to be believable, but sort of um, distant enough to be uncomfortable. Nice. That's quite a nice, nice niche uh, description. I like it. <laughs> and then uh, number four Alex is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why 
So would you kindly dedicate this episode? This, this might be a little bit difficult for me, but I'm going to try and get through it. But if I start to choke up a little bit, um, you might have to jump in, Giles. But Not a problem. I'd like to dedicate <clears throat> it to my dad, who is currently, I won't go into too much detail, but he's uh, currently in a bit of a health battle. And um, I think a lot of my career, and a lot of my interests, actually, I think are influenced by him. He was a he was a programmer, uh, but was also a, a very talented artist. He played guitar, uh, taught me to play blues guitar, uh, or at least got me into it. Um, he was a photographer, and I kind of studied photography at an early age. And yeah, I think the a lot of the reasons why I ended up doing what I'm doing, and particularly the early focus on graphic design, was was sort of because of him. He, he used to uh, subscribe to a magazine that I think I think was called Digital Photographer or Digital Photography or something like that. And each issue was uh, came with a CD-ROM that had a Photoshop tutorial on it. And I used to pinch them and sort of teach myself Photoshop on the family computer in the dining room, that kind of thing. And yeah, he he he. Uh, before he retired, he worked at Herman Miller, which is furniture designer they created the iconic Aeron chair so I think a lot of my love of art and design and architecture and photography and I think a lot of that comes back from just kind of it rubbing off on me from from him so yeah okay amazing well this episode is very proudly dedicated to to your dad um so and we, we wish wish him all the best Alex oh, thank you as a final call to action we will list everything we've discussed. We'll link to your articles, the areas of efficiency, the books you recommend. So Anatomy of Humbug, How Brands Grow, and then the, your dystopian fiction, We and, and Metropole. How else can our listeners get more Alex Morell? Probably the best place to go is uh, just my website, which is just alexmorell.co.uk. Uh, from there, all of, all of my articles are on there, linked to my Twitter, my newsletter, so on and so forth. So, yeah. Just the website, if you can work out how to spell morale. <laughs> we'll, we'll link to it. We'll link to it. So if you're listening to this, you can just open up your phone or however you listen and there'll, there'll be a link there. Uh, wonderful. Well, Alex, I've really enjoyed chatting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Me too. Thank you for having me. And it's great to finally speak to you, Giles, after a few years of talking on Twitter. Yeah, exactly that. Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.